Now, there's always the risk when you're doing an introduction of a guest speaker of being too self-referential. So indulge me for a moment there, uh, because I'm going to uh, be briefly self-referential. I hope it's not uh, uh, excessively so. When I was working on what became my uh, own book on religion and American Cold War policy, I was just looking at a pretty focused uh, time frame, 1945 to 1960, and I'm covering what I thought so it was some pretty interesting stuff. And when I was working on that, I remember thinking, I think there might be something to this religion and foreign policy angle. Somebody really needs to write the great magisterial book on this, and it's not me. Uh, I just don't, I don't have the faculties for that. But there's got to be a great historian out there who could write the magisterial synthesis of religion and American foreign policy. And it's around that time that I met Andrew and learned that he was at work on just such a project. And so it has been uh, great fun, both professionally and personally, to uh, watch this project through its, uh, its gestation and its sensitivity. And now it is uh, just in the last few months been been released. Uh, so here is the book itself. I have um, I can hardly commend it to you. Uh, I'll plug that it's on Amazon and all local bookstores that kind of stuff. So Andrew doesn't doesn't have to. But this really is a pathbreaking work of history. It's the first one ever of of, it, of its kind. Um, and as uh, as we've already seen with some of the reviews, uh, you know, many people agree with its interpretations. Others may disagree. But the important thing is that this book is now the standard reference, and every subsequent piece of scholarship in this area will have to be responding to to Andrew's arguments. So we're here not just for what I think what I know is going to be an interesting talk, but also for a kind of a great moment in. The, the history of history, uh, if you will. Andrew himself brings, I think, a wonderful uh, multi-anglosphere perspective to this project. He's a Canadian citizen, spent a lot of time in the United States studying and teaching here, and now uh, for several years has been teaching at, at uh, Clare College, Cambridge where he's a senior lecturer in, in American history. Andrew also has his own history here at, at, at uh, University of Texas in Austin and LBJ. His first book, also a classic in the field, The War Council of McGeorge Bundy, the NSC in Vietnam, uh, quite a bit of the research for that was, was done here. So Andrew is uh, you know, about this close to becoming an honorary Texan. Um, uh, anyway, Andrew, uh, with all that, it's a pleasure to, to welcome you to, to give us an overview talk on this wonderful new book by yours. So please welcome Andrew Preston. Uh, thanks, Will. Thanks for that very, I mean, that overly generous um, welcome all the same um, introduction. It's, I've spent uh, a lot of time at, at UT and here in Austin, and I love coming back, so I'm really grateful to be back. So thanks for having me. As Will said, I've done, I spent a lot of time at the LBJ Library doing research on the Vietnam War. Um, but three years ago, I think, it was three years ago, we had Lone Star, the Lone Star Conference, um, which A&M and UT and Southern Methodist um, host, and uh, I workshopped uh, a couple of chapters from the book at Lone Star, which was an incredibly helpful uh, thing for me, and it was a fan just a fantastic experience uh, all around. And, and because my, my work has taken me here quite a bit, I've got to know Austin a little bit, and I love coming here. And I know several people who teach here, because UT, with the history department and the LBJ school, has become a real powerhouse um, for the study of American foreign policy. And so um, several friends of mine teacher, people I know, people I respect, I'd like to thank them for helping me bring here and for welcoming me, being such a good host. So thanks to Frank, thanks to Will, thanks to Mark Lawrence, too, who is over there. Um, it's great to see um, uh, friendly faces and familiar uh, faces here back in Austin. Uh, as Will said, I will be um, uh, explaining, we're talking about my book and trying to explain the overview and the main arguments of the book, and I'm going to use uh, just one case study in a bit more detail to sort of um, give an example 
um, of, what I, of what I mean. Um, the book looks at the religious influence on American foreign relations, and it covers um, what's a big sweep of time. It begins in the late 16th century, before there were, before there were even British colonies in, in what's now the United States, and it finishes with the very recent, uh, it goes up to the very recent past. The main purpose of the book is to trace the historical evolution of the relationship between American religion and American foreign relations. Um, and I see this as a very deep and profound, um, but at the time I started uh, writing the book, it was a deep and profound but mostly ignored um, relationship. This was before, I began the book about four or five years before um, William Bowden's uh, great book on religion in the early Cold War. Um, was published, and when I began the book in 2003-2004, um, very few historians of American foreign relations had uh, looked at religion or integrated it into uh, uh, into the study of U.S. foreign policy in an effective way. There were exceptions, of course. Uh, there were uh, a small handful of scholars who had looked at religion and had integrated it into American diplomatic history, but they, they were very much exceptions, and they were kind of, um, they were respected figures, still are respected figures in the field, but they weren't, they were sort of off to one side, and okay, those people do religion, and it was sort of a niche topic, and it wasn't, um, it wasn't studied in a whole lot of detail. And then came 9-11, uh, which generated a huge amount of interest in uh, the role of religion and world affairs, the role of religion in international relations, and disciplines that had ignored um, religion uh, in, in the study you know, in their studies, such as history, diplomatic history, such as political science, IR theory, all of a sudden started paying attention uh, to religion. 9-11, the cliche about 9-11 now, and like a lot of cliches, it's true, 9-11 brought religion back in to the study of foreign policy, to the study um, of world politics. And it's easy to, uh, to understand why. In those years, in 2001, 2, and 3, religion seemed to be everywhere. It seemed to be on the lips of several world leaders who were playing a very um, deep and intimate role in what we might call the world crisis of the early uh, 21st century. So you obviously had George W. Bush using religion, you obviously had Osama bin Laden, but you had others too, like uh, uh, the British Prime Minister Tony Blair, um, uh, people from unexpected places and unexpected sources using religion to explain international politics and also to explain their own policies, not just um, my opponent or my enemy is a religious fanatic, but uh, also my solution, this is part of what Tony Blair was saying, my solution to the, uh, to the problems in the world today also are grounded to some extent um, in religion. So religion, or 9-11, brought religion back in to the, study, to the study of U.S. foreign policy and the study um, of world politics. However, much of this attention was either um, episodic uh, or, um, so we would look on a, on a particular episode or a particular moment, um, or most often it was political and often highly polemical. So a lot of the studies that emerged in the wake of 9-11 about religion and especially U.S. foreign policy were usually sensationalistic. Um, there was some good work, but almost all of it was focused on the present or on the very recent past, and it was quite sensationalistic. A lot of books on the religious right or Christian Zionism in Israel or so-called Islamofascism, or I'm sure you can all think of um, various examples of some of, this, of some of this literature. By the same token, um, religious historians hadn't paid much attention to foreign relations. So on one side of the coin, diplomatic historians had mostly ignored religion. On the other side of the coin, American religious historians had mostly ignored uh, the study of diplomacy, the study of foreign policy. 
And in most, um, including path-breaking great works of American religious history, if you look in the index and look up World War I or World War II or Vietnam or, or, or anything like that, um, there might be a few references, and if there are sustained references, it's, it's, it's to looking at American religion in the context of World War I, but without linking World War I to developments in American religious history. Um, and so while diplomatic historians and IR scholars have mostly ignored um, religion, religious historians, uh, uh, by the same token, had also ignored the study of foreign policy. And the effect was to have these two enormous bodies of literature, these two enormous historiographies, uh, grow essentially distinct from one another and separate and very rarely connected, very rarely connected. And as I began research on, on my book, I found I was, that was the thing that probably surprised me the most, because in American history there are two, um, it's hard to think of two phenomena that have been more consequential than religion and foreign relations. And there, there have been great studies linking religion to economics, to gender, to race, to, to politics, to all sorts of other topics in American history, but for some reason foreign relations is kind of shunted off to one side and, uh, and completely. This is where my book comes in, and it's why I've attempted to trace the roots of this relationship between religion and American diplomacy, uh, for lack of a better word, back to the colonial era and carry it through um, almost to the present. And by doing so, I'm really emphasizing um, continuity and a consistent influence between uh, a consistent religious influence on the, on, the on the practice of American foreign policy. The religious influence ebbed and it flowed. It wasn't always determining. In fact, very rarely would I say was it absolutely determining and the crucial factor above and, above and beyond any other factor. But it was always there. It wasn't just episodic. It didn't just de depend on um, a very religious person happening to occupy um, the White House. And I also argue that ideas about religious liberty, in particular, have had probably the longest, um, the longest current in what we might call American diplomatic thought. First five chapters of the book deal with the period up to 1791, from English Protestant ideas in the 1580s about religion, security, uh, and empire, to the First Amendment separation of church and state. And I try and link those uh, ideas about liberty and empire and ideas about the separation of church and state to the practice of U.S. foreign policy. There are whole libraries, of course, dedicated to the First Amendment's uh, free exercise and establishment clauses, and that, it wasn't my purpose to sort of... Um, to, to look at that debate in and of itself, but I wanted to link separationist ideas about church and state uh, to, the to the practice of American foreign policy. At the other end of the spectrum, the last chapter of the book deals with Ronald Reagan and the end of the Cold War, and the epilogue deals with George W. Bush and Barack Obama, fairly briefly, um, by placing them both in their very different ways, squarely within the history that I traced um, throughout, the, throughout the book, uh, the previous sections of the and yes, I would say that Barack Obama does fit, and I do argue in the epilogue that Barack Obama does fit um, as comfortably in this tradition of religion and American foreign policy as George W. Bush did. They're, they're, obviously, we're very different in their religious views. They're very different in their foreign policy records in, in many ways. It's similar in other ways, of course, as people um, now realize. But despite all their differences, both Obama and Bush uh, squarely fit within a tradition of... Um, of a religious influence on American foreign policy. By using such a large chronological suite, I wanted to give a fuller account of the many diverse and contradictory ways 
in which religion helped shape America's role in the world. In fact, the central premise of my book is that while religion provided many Americans with a cultural and ideological lens through which to view the world, uh, a mental map, if you will, there was no one single religious influence for many. And that through an endless series of arguments and debates about America's role in the world, these influences uh, produced a synthesis that pushed U.S. foreign policy in a highly moralistic direction. One of the research questions I had um, in writing the book was, why is American foreign policy so unusually idealistic, moralistic, normative, and values-driven? And a large, part of, uh, a large part of that, the answer to that question, I argue, is because of um, the unusually prevalent role that religion plays in American foreign policy, and has always played in American foreign policy. For this reason, the book is entitled Sword of the Spirit, Shield of Faith, which comes from the cobbling together of two phrases of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians uh, in the book of Ephesians on how to be a proper Christian. This is where Paul was telling the early Christians what it meant to be a Christian and what it took to be uh, a Christian. And those two phrases, sword of the spirit and shield of faith, they're not in the same verse in Ephesians. I've put them together in a way that Paul didn't, um, but they do capture my argument. I use these phrases not only because Amer several American foreign policymakers themselves invoke them to explain their own foreign policy, among them Woodrow Wilson and John Foster Dulles, but because these two phrases, sword of the spirit, shield of faith, convey the book's core argument that the religious influence has made American foreign relations unusually moralistic, normative, and values-driven, both in terms of war, the sword of the spirit, and peace, uh, the shield of faith. In terms of conservatism and liberalism, nationalism and internationalism, militarism and pacifism, exceptionalism, and cosmopolitanism. So the religious influence wasn't unidirectional, consensual, static, or monolithic. Uh, it wasn't, if we think of the caricatures of George W. Bush, it wasn't simply Bush backwards. It wasn't simply just applying uh, exceptionalist or messianic or interventionist um, uh, religious ideas and applying them uh, to foreign policy. It was a, it's, it's a much more interesting record. And I think the record on George W. Bush is also already much more interesting than those caricatures suggest and will become more interesting as we get um, distance from, the, from his presidency. I have two main approaches in explaining how and why religion has influenced the conduct of um, American foreign relations. The first, for anybody who's studied American diplomatic history, is fairly obvious and fairly conventional, and that's taking a top-down or political diplomatic um, perspective, looking at the elites <coughs> who made uh, foreign policy, and especially seeing to what extent religion affected them personally, how religious were these individuals, what did they believe, we want to come back to that problematic concept of what people believed or didn't believe in a second. But what they believed, what we know about their religious practices and what we know about their religious beliefs. And then trying to sort of take that religious biography of, it, of an elite policymaker and then look at their foreign policy in that context. And too many historians have skipped over that very crucial aspect of elite foreign policymakers. Um, has, have skipped over um, the extent, just how religious they were, and the extent to which their religion influenced, actually influenced policy. The top-down approach is unavoidable um, if you're going to study American foreign policy, or any foreign policy for that matter, because if you're going to study foreign policy, at, to some extent, at some remove, you have to study um, the policymakers. So the top-down approach is conventional, but it's unavoidable. And even the best practitioners of, the, of, the, of diplomatic history's cultural turn in the last 20 years, um, to, to a great extent, still focus on foreign policymakers. And that's certainly an approach that I take in this book. 
The second approach is a more bottom-up or social or cultural um, approach. And this is relatively new in my field of American diplomatic history. It's really only in the last 15 or 20 years that we've had a social turn or a cultural turn to the study of American foreign policy, where we're not just looking at elite policymakers, but we're looking at ordinary Americans, for lack of a better word, who didn't wield policymaking authority, who didn't have access to uh, the corridors of power, um, but who nonetheless, I argue in the book, played an integral role, integral role in uh, American diplomatic history. Um, I look at groups of religious Americans, for lack of a better term. I've taken some criticism for using the very term religious Americans as if you can generalize about religious Americans, but um, I, I've just found that you can't, at some remove, you just can't get away from those sorts of generalizations if we're talking about these sorts of things. Um, but I look at groups of religious Americans at churches, at parachurch organizations, at missionary groups. I look at individual preachers. I look at individual missionaries um, and their role, and especially their role in lobbying and pressuring elite policymakers to push American foreign policy in certain directions. Um, and the, the real engine of the book is driven by these uh, interactions between elite policymakers and bottom up, uh, this bottom-up social and cultural influence from ordinary Americans. Ordinary religious Americans who were themselves highly idealistic, very moralistic, very well organized, very used to pooling their resources to make their own political views felt and heard um, in Washington, be it with their, their, their congressman or a senator or, or the White House or the, or the State Department. And so the, the, an, the analytical engine of the book is driven by um, a process of um, a series of negotiations between elite policymakers and these um, very tireless, inexhaustible um, uh, religious Americans who are pressuring them to take U.S. foreign policy uh, in one direction or another. And I look at, at several of these groups, of these, of these, sort of, of these, these bottom-up influence. Um, I spent a lot of time looking at the abolitionists in the antebellum period who were overwhelmingly religious, either evangelicals um, or Unitarians, and who were also the foremost opponents of American expansion, westward expansion, which is we think of as a domestic topic, and of course is at heart also a foreign policy topic. I look at, I pay a great deal of attention looking at the ecumenical movement, the Protestant ecumenical movement in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and I make the argument that they were not only the first cheerleaders, but among the first important architects of international organization, of what would become the League of Nations and what would become the United Nations. And one of the ironies here is that it was American ecumenical missionary groups who were some of the most fervent supporters and also some of the most important source of ideas about the League of Nations and then about um, the United Nations. I also look at more recent examples of a sort of more bottom-up social influence such as um, the, uh, what we might call the, uh, I don't want to say protest movement because it wasn't always people in the streets carrying placards, but certainly a lot of broad-based opposition to the Nixon and Ford administrations over the question of Soviet Jewry. Um, and this was very much um, a, a sort of bottom-up driven campaign that was also, that also included a lot of uh, elites in Congress, but that had a profound effect on the conduct um, of U.S. foreign policy. And common to both these top-down and bottom-up approaches is it involves uh, groups of people for whom religion shaped their perception of the wider world and of America's role in it. <coughs> well, we have to be careful um, about speaking of individual belief and then linking belief to human behavior. 
It's difficult, if not impossible, to speak with any certainty at all about what a person believes. There's no way I could, even if I knew everything about you, there's no way about any single person here in the audience, there's no way I could prove definitively um, what any one of you believes or doesn't believe, no matter what you say, no matter what you write down, because it involves access to an interior world um, that we can, of course, never have access to. Um, there's no way of proving, one way or another, what somebody believed or didn't believe. And in religious studies departments, and in sociolo sociology departments and anthropology departments, people who study religion are shying away from linking belief to behavior because it is impossible to demonstrate what somebody believed. In fact, it's very, just me using the word belief and saying what somebody believed or didn't believe is very much, it goes against the grain um, of, of, uh, of in most religious studies departments, um, certainly in the United States today. And I take, I take all that on board, and I certainly acknowledge that I could never prove what any of you believe or don't believe, um, and certainly I couldn't prove what anyone believed or didn't believe 50 or 100 or 200 years ago. Instead, I argue that as historians, the best we can do is examine the manifestations of belief, both private and public, and to look for consistencies and regularities between private and public belief, between private, what we might call private belief and public behavior. Or, not just to look for consistencies and regularities, but to look for inconsistencies and irregularities. In other words, did policymakers take religious ideas, observances, and other manifestations of faith seriously? Was their public use of religion consistent with their private faith? Did they make religion a central part of their life? Was it part of their policy making? This is what Jose Casanova, a, um, a sociologist at Georgetown, calls the discursive reality. He says, let's not get caught up with proving what somebody believed or not. Let's just look at what they said and what they did and then measure those manifestate, what we might call manifestate, or what I call manifestations of belief. And by doing so, the answers we arrive, or at least the answers I arrived at, um, are often surprising. For example, I argue that the foreign policies of some of the most personally devout presidents, such as Jimmy Carter, were not as religiously motivated as we might assume. And I have a very, very brief section um, on Jimmy Carter. Then there are those like Woodrow Wilson or John Foster Dulles or Ronald Reagan, who were clearly religious and whose religion clearly influenced their worldview, but in ways historians have not fully appreciated. I, I think historians have more or less got Woodrow Wilson right, and I think I contribute to that discussion uh, on the margins in some ways. But I think historians have misunderstood, especially John Foster Dulles, um, but also others like Ronald Reagan. Other figures, such as Richard Nixon, professed a great religiosity, while almost entirely ignoring it in the making of their foreign policy. And here, I argue that the inconsistencies were, uh, were, were telling and revealing. While others, who were not normally thought of as particularly religious, um, such as Abraham Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt, or George Kennan, did regularly turn to religion, and they did, did turn to religion in framing and articulating, and also, I argue, um, actually devising uh, their foreign policy. So if you read anything on, uh, not anything, there are some exceptions, but most books on uh, Franklin Roosevelt say that um, he wasn't a religious man at all, and that it was purely cultural for him, despite Roosevelt himself, when he was asked to define his ideology, FDR told the reporter, I'm a Christian and a Democrat, and that's it. And he, it wasn't incidental that he put Christian, uh, that he put Christian first. So in this sense, my book is an exercise in historical recovery. Revisionism, yes, but I think a more appropriate word is recovery, for I've come to believe that we've misunderstood 
um, uh, the religious backgrounds of key figures and therefore misunderstood key figures uh, themselves. And the reason historians have misunderstood the, the religion of these key figures and they've misunderstood these key, key figures themselves is because they haven't taken their religion seriously. They've been, there's a kind of condescension among a lot of scholars to the religious views of people of, of the past, let alone people of the present. But right now, I'd like to take a little more time to, exam, uh, to examine one of my examples, one of my case studies, in a little more depth to show you what I mean, and that's the case of William McKinley. McKinley, of course, was president from 1897 until his assassination uh, in 1901. He was a Republican president, and he was known at the time, and has certainly gone down um, quite rightly in the historiography as a gold standard Republican, a sound money Republican, a friend of big business, um, and so on and so forth. He was also president um, uh, during the Spanish-American War in 1898, and he was president when uh, he was the president to be confronted with the Philippine question, what to do um, with the Philippines. The Philippines uh, in 1898 was a kind of sideshow in the Spanish-American War. It was a theater in the, the Spanish-American War, which was mainly fought um, over and in Cuba and also Puerto Rico. But it was very much a Caribbean war. Um, but part of the American strategy was to knock out the Spanish fleet that was based um, in Manila, um, not necessarily to take the Philippines, although there were some Americans who had that goal in mind, um, but really to hit the Spanish as hard as possible and, and to end the war as quickly as possible, and certainly to prevent the Spanish from sailing, the war dragged on and on and on, to prevent the Spanish fleet from sailing all the way from the Philippines um, to Cuba to take part, or to the Caribbean uh, to take part in the fighting. The war was over fairly quickly. This was only a, this was a war for about three months and very few American casualties. Uh, this was John Hay's splendid little war, his famous uh, phrase about the Spanish-American War, which was more, he meant it to be more ironic than that, but it's gone down as a kind of celebratory um, description of this very short, very successful American war. But when the war ended, the United States found, its, found itself in possession of Manila and by extension all of the Philippines. Just by defeating the Spanish fleet and, and occupying Manila, it had replaced the Spanish who were already by that point um, extremely uh, unpopular. So the U.S. was in possession of Manila and by extension the Philippine archipelago, um, but nobody knew what to do with it. No American certainly knew uh, what to do with it. And so began this great debate in 1898-99 in the United States over, about what to do with the Philippines. Should uh, McKinley simply give the Filipinos their independence? Should he make it an American colony? Should he turn it over to another European power? And so on and so forth. And this was one of those decisions um, that to us seems obvious today, give the Filipinos their independence, and I think that was probably uh, the right decision. But at the time, it seems to policymakers that this was a decision with no good options. So in this difficult decision, which was extremely controversial at the time, and the big political, um, one of the big political controversies um, of the day, McKinley had no idea what to do. And in fact, when the negotiators sailed for Paris, where they would negotiate with the Spanish over the terms of the settlement of the Spanish-American War, American plenipotentiaries had no idea what they were going to demand vis-a-vis um, -vis the Philippines. They had clear instructions on Cuba and on Puerto Rico and on the, the amount of the indemnity and so on and so forth, um, but they didn't have any instructions about what to do with the Philippines. And in this vacuum of any kind of decision, a national debate really built up and really um, raged that was as controversial as anything we've ever seen in American diplomatic history. 
McKinley eventually did decide to colonize the Philippines, or to use the euphemism of the day to annex the Philippines, but to make the Philippines clearly um, an American colony. And he infamously, and I say infamously because it has been infamous in the historiography, he infam infamously explained his decision to annex the Philippines as divine inspiration. In a meeting with missionary leaders from the Methodist Church, which was his own uh, denomination, he said, quote, I walked the floor of the White House night after night until midnight, and I, and I am not ashamed to tell you, gentlemen, that I went down on my knees and prayed Almighty God for light and guidance more than one night. And one night late, it came to me this way. I don't know how it was, but it came. There was nothing left for us to do but to take them all and to educate the Filipinos and uplift and civilize and Christianize them and by God's grace do the very best we could by them as our fellow men for whom Christ also died. Well, ever since then, historians haven't really treated McKinley very kindly for that uh, quotation. In 1973, in a major article entitled Imperialism and Sincerity, a distinguished historian of American foreign relations and international, international relations took McKinley to task for being, well, insincere. And almost all historians of this phase of American imperialism have agreed. According to this view, McKinley wasn't motivated or even informed by religion, but by other factors, be they strategic, political, diplomatic and economic. In this view, religion wasn't Marx's false consciousness so much as a cynical cloaking device to justify a decision taken for other reasons, be they strategic, political, diplomatic, or economic. And those are all certainly important factors. I would never, um, I would never want anyone to take away from any episode of my book that religion was the only factor or, in most cases, even the sole factor or the determining factor. It was certainly was a very important factor, um, oftentimes, uh, in the mix. And in McKinley's decision to take the Philippines, all of those uh, considerations, <coughs> strategic, political, economic, and so on and so forth, were important. But I argue religion was also important, and I argue that historians have missed this importance, this importance of, uh, of McKinley's religion, and have derided that famous story about him getting on his knees and praying to God because they haven't considered McKinley's religious biography. And when we look at McKinley's religion, what we know about McKinley's religion, what he himself did and what he himself said and wrote and where he put his energies, um, it's easy to see how religion could have informed his decision to take the Philippines. He was raised in an evangelical Methodist household in Antebellum, Ohio. He had an intensely devout uh, Methodist mother to whom he was extremely close. And later in life, he said that his, his favorite memory from childhood was of listening to Methodist circuit riders um, come into town and give their sermon and then leave and everyone would talk about them. Like many evangelicals, benevolent reform, and not the pro-business policies he would later adopt, brought him to the, to the Republican Party. The Republican Party was founded as a kind of, um, in some senses, as a way to coalesce a lot of these reform movements, uh, be they about post office reform or prison reform, or of course about or, or free soil and other milder forms of anti-slavery. As a student, young McKinley was president of the YMCA in Canton, Ohio, at a time when the C in the YMCA meant everything. Now it means more or less nothing, I would say. Um, but when it meant everything, and when the YMCA was an evangelical missionary organization. He fought in the Civil War, including at Antietam, and regularly attended soldiers' prayer meetings and participated in camp revivals. And he supported emancipation at a time, as I said earlier, 
He supported emancipation at a time when, in 1860, 61, 62, when um, usually the only people supporting abolition or emancipation were uh, faith-based, to use a, a, a current term. They were evangelical abolitionists, or they were uh, Unitarians, different theological bedfellows to be sure, but they came at it from a moralistic, a moral point of view that was informed by their faith, that slavery was wrong, it was a sin, which is very different from free soil ideology, which I don't, I don't see has any kind of religious component or basis to it. The free soil ideology, um, criticized, of course, criticized slavery very fiercely, but not because it was wrong for what it did to blacks, but for what it was doing to the country and what it was doing to the American Republic. McKinley favored radical reconstruction after the war and was bitterly critical of the South's treatment of freed slaves. Also after the war, he and his wife Ida were leaders in the temperance movement in Ohio, again, a, a, an intensely evangelical um, a reform movement. As a lawyer, McKinley represented minors' unions. And as a congressman, he voted in favor of the Bland Free Coinage Bill and the Sherman Silver Purchase Bill. So this is gold standard McKinley, sound money McKinley, voting in favor of silver measures in the 1870s and 80s. And as a congressman, he denounced Jim Crow as it was beginning to take root in the 1880s through the South. He continued his support of radical positions during Reconstruction into the 1880s, when a lot of Northern Republicans had, been, had started abandoning those positions. In other words, McKinley was a devout evangelical Methodist in an era when evangelical Methodists were devoted to reform, from the antebellum benevolent empire and abolitionism to the social gospel of the progressive era. Methodists were committed to the notion of uplift that was central to this reformist ideology. They were committed to the notion of uplift. Often paternalistic, at times racist ideas about uplift to be sure, but uplift nonetheless, which when, com which, when combined with faith-based ideas about America's virtue and manifest destiny, in which McKinley very much believed, and Methodists were probably the most ardent believers in those ideas through the 1850s, 60s, 70s, to the end of the century. Um, when combined with these ideas about America's virtue and manifest destiny, was a tailor-made ideology for imperialism. McKinley wanted to be a Republican president, and so by the 1890s, this meant moving to the right on race and economics. And we can see McKinley, uh, when he begins running for national office, very quickly abandoning um, his, uh, his support for, silver, for miners' unions and for for silver, um, and so on and so forth. And we also see him abandoning his, his earlier radical views from Reconstruction and his denunciation of Jim Crow, and he turned a blind eye by the 1890s to the establishment of Jim Crow throughout the South. <coughs> but in foreign affairs, he could still practice a form of progressive faith-based social control. So when McKinley got down on his knees and prayed for guidance about the Philippines, was he being insincere? Well, I can't prove one way or the other. But I would say, hardly. He often got down on his knees and prayed to God for guidance. This was who McKinley was. Indeed, it would have been odd had he not got down on his knees and prayed to God for guidance. And it was perfectly natural for him to embark upon a foreign policy grounded in, notion, in notions of paternalistic Christian uplift. I then argue in, the, in my book, I then argue that this helps us account for, for the phenomenon of progressive imperialism. It's not a term that I came up with, but I think it's something that most historians haven't really tapped into, this notion of progressive imperialism, which had its origins in these Christian notions of uplift and civilization. Progressive imperialism might seem like an oxymoron to us today. It might seem like it's inherently contradictory. But it, there's nothing contradictory about it to William McKinley. 
And there was nothing contradictory about it either to people who had the same kind of worldview as McKinley did, such as Teddy Roosevelt, Elihu Root, Beveridge, Mahan, uh, Josiah Strong, uh, and others. And I also think this helps, us, this helps explain why the U.S. decided to govern its colony in the Philippines in a manner that was slightly different, not entirely different, but slightly different than what the European powers were doing in other parts of, um, in other parts of Asia. Um, let me sum up with a few general remarks, and then we'll have some time for uh, questions and answers. And I'd be happy to answer questions about a lot, of, about not just about McKinley, but about a lot of other episodes I didn't have time uh, to trace in any detail. Religion doesn't explain everything in the history of American foreign relations. It may not even explain most of it. Many episodes in American diplomatic history, even very broadly defined, have little to do um, with religion. Religion didn't necessarily trump the national interest. I don't think we'll ever find instances where a policymaker said, I'm doing this because of my faith, even though it's bad for the country. But I think that misses the point. That's not where to look for the religious influence. Instead, I argue that religion helps frame the context and the worldview in which decisions, in which individuals' decisions um, are made. It helps frame the context in which the national interest is perceived. Um, religion doesn't replace, uh, sorry, religion, by looking at religion in this way, we see that it was much more of a factor than we've realized or acknowledged in any number of episodes in American foreign relations history. It doesn't replace what we know, but I argue that it enhances it. In this sense, religion provides missing pieces of a puzzle. We generally know what the puzzle already looks like, but we're still missing clarity or we're still missing the full picture in certain ways. And by looking for these missing pieces, these missing religious pieces, we can get a better sense of what the puzzle of American foreign relations actually looks like. Thank you. Can I just take questions? Yeah, you go ahead and take questions. Okay. Yeah, um, I'm going to start with a question sort of more contemporary one. It has to do with the word evil, which most of us don't use in our ordinary vocabulary, but figured prominently in the language of Ronald Reagan, especially George W. Bush. Mm -hmm. There was an article by Peter Singer at Princeton, yeah. not a very scientific one that you're I'm sure familiar with, in which he did a uh, rudimentary content analysis of speeches and counted the number of times evil appeared. There was a huge number in George W. Bush's speeches, and it was most often used as a noun, not an adjective, mm -hmm. so not evil action, but evil. I think we know where this comes from, <coughs> but how do you see this concept of evil playing out in American foreign policy under George W. Bush and perhaps going back much farther? To Reagan or others in previously. Sure. No, that's a great question. And Singer then developed that uh, into a book. I think it was called about George W. Bush. It was called The President of Good and Evil, I think, or something. something that was like the article, right? Yeah. yeah, and then I think it became a book. Sort of, you know, he's a philosopher and, and took a really interesting um, approach. Um, it, it wasn't my approach in the book, but it's certainly relevant. Uh, I can by by only giving George W. Bush a, a very brief cameo appearance in the epilogue, um, I can. It, it, it sort of allows me to dodge questions with George, George W. Bush a little bit. I'll try not to dodge it here, but I, I might dodge it um, a little bit. I think that for both for George W. Bush certainly, and there are people in this room who know Bush a lot better than I do, that personal experience with him. But my reading of Bush is that religion, that my description of, of 
my sort of methodological description of how we use religion to look at foreign relations history fits Bush very well. But it was a powerful uh, influence in the formation of his worldview and how he perceived the national interest, how he perceived what America should do, because of course there are a range of options which direction a foreign policymaker uh, uh, heads in depends a lot on their preconceptions, their preconditions, what their, uh, what their worldview is. Um, Henry Kissinger once said, I'm probably going to garble the phrase, but it's something like a policymaker um, ha already has his worldview or her worldview formed by the time he or she uh, comes into office. And it doesn't change much once they're in office. And what they do is apply their, everything that they've learned in life in the making of foreign policy under obvious constraints. They can't just do what they want. But I think that fits Bush fairly well, um, and that his, uh, his notion of evil certainly has theological implications. Uh, I think that's also true for Ronald Reagan, even though Reagan had a very different faith from Bush, and it helped them see the world in a certain, uh, uh, in a certain way, and it helped them make certain foreign policy decisions. It's not, it wasn't the only thing, and I don't think, I think you know, a lot of these caricatures of Bush being a, uh, sort of a captain of the religious right, or a, cheer, or a sort of... Uh, you know, an advance agent for the religious right or something like that, just totally, just totally missed the mark. But I think certainly his use of evil had a lot to do with his own, uh, I don't say theological, because neither Bush nor Reagan, nor any president for that matter, except for maybe Woodrow Wilson or Jimmy Carter, had a, a, a really good grasp of theology. But I think, certainly think those religious ideas were important. Right? Terrific talk. I, I, I've been um, convinced by both you and Will importance of religion in American foreign policy. And it, it made me think that the way we've been interpreting it, um, sort of the broad sweep of it might be wrong, uh, given that what seems to happen, and overgeneralizations here, that religion is extraordinarily important. And then at a point, you guys could date it better than I could, but maybe the late 50s, early 60s, till maybe the mid 70s, <coughs> you have what, what you might call the secular exception. Yeah. And you have the new frontier, the great society, detente, modernization, all, yeah, all that kind of thing. All programs which um, take a very ex explicitly secular focus. So I'm wondering, and again, a lot of the historiography that we deal with emerged from that period and from people who feel like that. I wonder if that is taking it too far. If, when we people look at the mid and late 70s and they talk about a religious revival, maybe the argument is, no, in fact, this was always there. There was this odd secular moment that's actually out of place. That's sort of the first question. Second question is, um, several years ago, a good friend of ours, Ben Sass, gave a terrific talk here where he talked about how many, much of the influence of how religion affected American political life depended upon the battles within Protestant churches yeah. themselves. And that you could chart, and I was thinking in terms of McKinley, was there a sense, was, was there theological debate, and the questions about progressivism and social justice were not uncontroversial in the late 19th century, from what I gather in Protestant circles. And I wonder if you could give us a sense of how those, those debates and discussions within the high Protestant church played out and affected things, and whether those debates had anything to do with perhaps the secular moment that emerges. Because what you kind of see in the mid-late 70s, it's not the high Protestant church that re-emerges, it's something else. And the sort of high theologians that dominated things earlier disappear. <coughs> those are two great questions, two really rich questions that I'll try and answer briefly in the interest, in the interest of time. I completely agree with you about this kind of secular age in the 60s and 70s, and I make that argument 
um, in the, I have a, a section of the book that deals with, so the book is broken up into parts, rather than sections, but parts. And I have a part that deals with that sort of high Cold War period from Kennedy to, what's well, the last part of the book, and it ends with Ronald Reagan, but I argue that that period between 1961 and 81 is a kind of secularization of American foreign policy. Following on the heels of three of the most, um, sorry, three of the presidents who did the most to bring religion into foreign policy, Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, um, and Dwight Eisenhower. Partly that had to do with a lot of the things you just, you just mentioned. This is the era of high modernism, not just in the United States, but across the world, the big statist solutions to society's problems. This was, in 1960, Daniel Bell, in his book, The End of Ideology, predicted the end of American evangelicalism. And said it's a, it's a sort of prim, primeval, primordial force, and it's on the way out, and it, he called it schizoid or peculiar, and it's emotional, and it has no place in modern society. This is in 1960, right on the cusp of the, of the rise of what we would later call the religious right. Um, so a lot of people missed it. This is the era of modernization theory. It's also, you know, Kennedy in 1960 was, of course, the first Catholic president, and there was this big fear uh, that he would be a Catholic president, that he would have dual loyalties, and if those loyalties clashed, that he would follow the Vatican rather than the American national interest. Um, I mean, a lot of civil rights leaders, Protestant civil rights leaders, blacks fighting prejudice, said they wouldn't vote for Kennedy because he was a Catholic. Um, so just, I mean, anything that Romney has faced in 2012 or, or 2008 about his Mormonism is nothing compared to what Kennedy faced in 1960 about his Catholicism. So Kennedy and people in the, admi you know, in the administration, any time religion would rear its head, Kennedy wanted no part. It was just too just too hot for him to touch. So when the Peace Corps is set up, the question then arises, what does the Peace Corps do about American missionaries who have the most extensive experience with development and overseas and with living with people overseas? They, don't want, they want to keep mission, mission boards and missionary groups as far away as possible. They have to deal with them at some point. Catholic Relief Services? No way. We're gonna, you, know, you can do your work and we'll cooperate with you when we can, but we're not going to have very intimate uh, relations. Um, and this really is a part of the 60s and 70s, and it's all, it's, so it's partly because of the context, but it's also partly because of the individuals, and I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And then I argue that that blind spot sort of, um, well, it blinded administrations like the Kennedy administration to developments in, in world politics. So with the rise of religion, with militant Islam, not just, sorry, not just Kennedy, obviously, but right through to the 70s, it blinded Kennedy, Nixon, Carter, whoever, to the rise of militant Islam, to Buddhist politics in South Vietnam. I have a quote where Kenneth, when the, this broad-based Buddhist protest movement erupts in, 19, in May 1963, and it's totally undermining all of U.S. policy in South Vietnam. Kennedy turns to him and he says, who are these people? And it's like, well, the 90% of the population, they're the biggest group in South Vietnam, and they're very important. They had no idea who these people were. Um, Anyway, I can talk more about secularization theory because it's a theme in the book and I'd love to, but I think I should move on to the other. Uh, but you can follow up if, if there's something else worth that I'm not answering. Um, in, in the 19th century, 20th century, absolutely. There were intensely controversial splits between what were, who were called modernists or liberals and fundamentalists or conservatives over um, how, the extent to which the church should be an, uh, an agent of social reform, of progressive reform. Should, should it get involved in politics? Was it compromising its spiritual mission by getting involved in politics? And a lot of modernists were adopting, trying to, trying to sort of uh, uh, make peace with Darwinism, make, have the church make peace with Darwinism, um, biblical criticism, that sort of thing. And so they were de-emphasizing the spiritual and supernatural aspects of religion 
and this uh, angered a lot of fundamentalists or conservatives. Um, interestingly, we see this also in, foreign, in religious foreign policy debates at the time, where fundamentalists were very opposed to missionaries doing what we might call development work today. So they were very opposed to building schools or to, uh, to helping uh, help with irrigation ditches and that sort of thing. They just wanted to focus on spreading, uh, on spreading the gospel. Um, and fundamentalist groups then went on to uh, oppose the League of Nations, the United Nations later on, um, even as they came to support a quite robust uh, U.S. foreign policy. So we see these splits and these uh, sort of intra-church political splits also spill over into foreign policy as well. Yes, in the back. You talked about bringing uh, two historiographies Oh yeah, that's the thing. I, I mean, I realized that, but I just thought, oh, I'll just dip in and see, see what I can learn here. And, and of course, like, you're wading in on every topic. You're wading into really intense, uh, really intense debates. What did I take from it? And also religious studies and religious theory and that sort of thing. Um, and I'm not sure we could. I mean, there are general trends in American, uh, in the historiography of American and, and big sort of overviews. It's like any kind of historiography about that covers all of American history. It's very particularistic, and there are very intense debates over particular questions. And I, I mean, the, my, you know, I'm originally a diplomatic historian. I, my, you know, my purpose was to look at religion's influence on American foreign policy. So most of my historiographical interventions are within uh, the history of American foreign relations, as opposed to American religious history. I hope religious historians can learn from, you know, some things from the book uh, as well. And I try to be as sensitive as possible to historiographical debates within American religion, and as well as debates about theory and method in religious studies departments, which I found really frustrating because as I was, like I said in my talk, as I was, as I was, most of, and most American religious historians sort of sidestep those debates too, like, <coughs> can we define religion? Uh, because we can't define religion because it's notoriously difficult, everyone has their own de definition. Then does it have any causal util utility as a category of analysis? Can we use it as a to describe human behavior, um, and so on and so forth. Um, you know, can we prove belief? No, of course we can't. So uh, a lot of then so sociologists and anthropologists then don't want to link it to behavior, don't want to link it to politics, I mean, to any kind of behavior, let alone politics. Um, and I found those debates really frustrating, and at some point I just had to leave them aside. And I had to say, like most American religious historians, I just had to say, well, I'm just going to look at what we do know, or what we can measure through empirical evidence, and then logically try and apply those to, um, or apply that rather, to American foreign policy, to the study of American foreign policy. And as I did, I thought, there's not a whole lot different between, Amer between religion as a, as, a, as, a, as a phenomenon and anything else, an ideology or political ideology or economic ideology. They're all in, they all belong to interior world. There's no way I can prove, or any of us can prove, what an individual believes or doesn't believe on anything. But religion seems to be kept aside because it's reliant to some extent on the supernatural and because of, you know, obviously proving something that is much more difficult. Um, at some point, I just had to kind of leave that aside and, and just try and go with the evidence that I had and make um, causal connections that I thought were logical. You mentioned the Methodist a lot in your speech. Uh, it was a denomination founded by John Wesley. 
famous Christian Arminians who really valued uh, free will, the free will of man. Mm. So I was just wondering how you would compare their approach to domestic and foreign policy with their Protestant cousins, say the Calvinistic, Presbyterians, and Puritans. And then how did, did they justify like that progressive imperialism with their value of the free will of man? That's a great question. Um, and uh, with somebody like McKinley, the theological sophisticated, I mean, he just wasn't very theologically sophisticated. He didn't think in those terms, at least as far as I can tell. He didn't think in terms of free will or predestination or, or, or those sorts of things. And I, I, would, I would say that most of the people I was looking at, certainly the policymakers, um, felt similarly. They had a core set of ideas that a lot of other Methodists or a lot of other Presbyterians would share about predestination, about free will, um, about American destiny, about America's place in religious history, and America's place in world history, and would apply, would apply those ideas. Um, and it's, it's really tough to find a lot of theological consistency when you look at people who aren't theologians or who are very, you know, as far as I can tell, McKinley was a very religious person, um, but as I said, wasn't particularly theologically informed. Methodists have been a, a hugely influential denomination in American political history and American um, religious history as well, and certainly in, in the history of foreign relations. I was surprised, and I, I don't say why in the, in the book, and maybe I should have, um, but I was surprised that most of the policymakers who I looked at were Presbyterians. Or, sorry, not most, because that implies a majority, but if, if any one denomination seemed to dominate among American elites, certainly elites who made foreign policy, it was uh, Presbyterians, be it George Cannon or Woodrow Wilson or uh, John Foster Dulles or Condoleezza Rice, um, and the, the, the list sort of um, goes on and on and on. I'm not, maybe somebody in the audience has an idea of why that might be, why Presbyterians would predominate um, over Methodists or over Episcopalians or any other, any other group. Um, the last thing I'd say is that certainly with certain denominations that they, um, I mean, you can't, you can't generalize about any denomination because you can always find exceptions or you can always find really intense conflicts. So with modernists and fundamentalists that, you know, this often pitted Presbyterian against Presbyterian or Methodist against Methodist or Baptist against Baptist. So these are, you can't generalize that Baptists felt this or Presbyterians felt that. And I tried to be very sensitive to which type of Presbyterian, which type of Methodist or which type of Baptist where they came from, what their political views were, what we know of their theological views, and, and, and how we can um, um, and how we can measure those. <coughs> and in McKinley's era, the Methodists were foremost in the social gospel movement, but they were also foremost in, uh, you know, in sort of making peace with big business and tying the Republican Party to big business. And McKinley himself, in his background, straddled those two. And I, I, I have a couple of paragraphs on this where he straddled both of those. Uh, sides of Methodism, if you will, those, those camps within Methodism. There's a question in the back here. I'll just observe, wasn't a lot of the elite schools you know, that were a lot of diplomats went to and leaders in the Northeast were associated with the Presbyterian Church? Absolutely. They, a lot of them were. A lot of them were associated with other churches, too, especially the, the, either the Episcopal or the Presbyterian churches. So Groton in Massachusetts, which was Episcopalian, you know, very high church Episcopalian school, produced quite a few foreign policymakers who had a very similar ethos of noblesse oblige or public service or whatever you want to call it, Franklin Roosevelt or Dean Acheson or April Harriman or someone like that. Who, they all had a very similar uh, type of worldview. But you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. I'm sure that, that there's a connection there between that kind of education and then who goes on into to holding a sort of elite policymaking 
uh, positions. Uh, I had a question about millinery and movements and, and how they fit into the uh, uh, the stream of American diplomatic history. I mean, we had a we, we've had a long history of millinery and movements in in the U.S. Um, driven by uh, driven by religious belief, um, and we're not alone in that in the world. But uh, I just wondered how you see the, the sort of influence of millenarian groups of the, uh, the, the, the power or the, the reference to uh, revelations, that kind of thing, in the current context and, and across the broader uh, historical context. Well, in the current, con in the current context, um, I mean, I, you know, I just know what I read in the papers about, about today, but I would say that in the current context, that there's a long history of this, as you implied in your question, that this isn't something new. Um, millennialist movements, millenarian mil mil movements, aren't, they've, had a, some, they've played some sort of role in American public life and political life, and that's been true um, in foreign policy. Uh, the one that's captured a lot of attention over the last 10 years or so has been Christian Zionism. Um, these are you know, very conservative Christians, fundamentalist Christians, who, um, who uh, believe in prophecy and see Israel having a particular role in bringing about prophecy and bringing about biblical prophecy and bringing about Christ's return to earth and the defeat, you know, defeating the armies of Satan and ushering in the, the millennium and the thousand years of peace. Um, and this, this sort of helps explain why a lot of very conservative Christians have this unshakable, fervent support for Israel. Um, which is certainly a phenomenon. It got a lot of play over the last 10 years because, again, uh, the Bush administration was supposed to be captive to Christian Zionists, that they were just following a Christian Zionist lead. Um, and this helped explain Bush's support for Israel, and sort of very fervent support for Israel, um, which, I think, which I think carries it too far, and I try not to, not to make those kinds of connections in the book. But Christian Zionism wasn't, isn't a new phenomenon. It's not something from the last 10 or 15 years. It's very deep within American history. Christian Zionism, what we might call Christian Zionism as a movement, began in the late 19th century. Christian Zionist, or what we might call Christian Zionist ideas, or an identification, a cultural identification, as well as religious identification, with the idea of Israel, the concept of Israel, long before the nation state of Israel in 1948, goes back to the 17th century, when a group like the Puritans um, had been persecuted in England as Jews under, under anti-Jewish laws um, you know, because, they, they, because of their belief in the Old Testament and wanting to bring a lot of Old Testament views back into English society. They founded a new Jerusalem, a new Israel, um, that sort of thing. So this, this very deep cultural as well as religious identification with Israel goes back a long time. Other millennialist movements or millenarian movements um, have, been, have had a I wouldn't say decisive, but it's certainly a large voice in foreign policy debates uh, in the United States. So I mentioned earlier, talking about fundamentalists in response to Frank's question, how uh, that they were some of the staunchest opponents of the League of Nations, um, and that they, they sort of would refuse to make any peace with the idea of a League of Nations. We see this later with their opposition to the UN that carried forth uh, through the 20th century. And with any kind of big um, statist, organization, uh, any kind of big concentration of secular power. Um, millennialists fear this because, again, of its partly because of its uh, place in biblical prophecy. You know, there are passages in the Bible, especially in, in Revelation, but also in Daniel or Ezekiel, that you could, you, could, you could sort of read those passages as foretelling something like 
um, a world government that we would see in the UN, or, or rather that some people saw in the UN uh, or the League of Nations. Um, and I argue in the book that this helps explain uh, a lot of fundamentalists, especially those who do believe in prophecy to some extent, it explains their unshakable opposition to something like the UN or the League of Nations or the European community or, or so on and so forth. I, I, I argue I, um, that I say that it's no coincidence that support for the UN declined precipitously in the mid-70s and for Dayton at the same time that uh, uh, belief or, or sort of acceptance of a lot of these prophetic beliefs became widespread we, you know, through things like Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth and a lot of movies and TVs from the 70s that put a lot of emphasis on, on prophecy. So it's, it's definitely a strain um, in, in the book, but I would be careful just to say that it's not the, do, you know, it's not the dominant strain. Or it's, it gets a lot of attention a lot of times, but it's not necessarily the most important one. Now, can you distinguish progressive imperialism from the white man's burden? No, not really. It's a very good point. I mean, they're essentially, um, at some point, the same kind of concept of the French had their civilizing mission. Um, they're both, I would say that the American versions, um, I'm not a British historian or a French historian, but um, the French civilizing mission was certainly tied to Catholicism and certainly grounded in very Christian ideas at the time. British imperialism certainly was tied to the Church of England and Anglican notions um, of uplift and virtue and, and progress and, and that sort of thing. Um, just from my reading of, of European imperialism, I mean, the Dutch had something similar. Um, there are two things that I would say. One, the American one was much more grounded in uh, religious politics and religious issues and, and religious ideas, and it was more that, that these ideas were more popular and more widespread, that they were debated more in the United States. I would also say that they were more enduring. You don't have the same to get back to sort of the, one of the points that Frank was making about secularization. You don't see their decline. Uh, or sorry, um, yeah, you don't see their decline in the United States um, and in American debates. Um, that's not to say that they were preponderant or determining, but that they, you really see a striking continuity in the link between religion and American formulations that you don't see um, uh, in other countries. But, but American imperialism, I mean, it was different in some respects, but it was definitely of a piece of the time in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And it was, it was, certainly, it was certainly different, as I said, but it was, it was very similar to these other ideologies. Um. Joseph Stalin was uh, told about the, uh, the power of the Pope, and he said very derisively, yeah. how many divisions does he have? I, yeah, I have that in the book. <laughs> my, my question is, can you speak to the relationship between Reagan and John Paul II, and how did that help defeat the, uh, well, the largely atheistic communists, in, in, especially in Poland, where religion played a very central role in the liberation of that country? Yeah, the role of the Vatican and American foreign policy in the 20th century was very contentious. Um, and it really wasn't, I mean, Reagan was the first president to, Reagan was the president who normalized relations, official relations between the Holy See and the United States. That's where you had your first exchange of ambassadors. Truman tried to do it before. It's something that Will in Bowdoin spends a lot of time looking at in his book. Truman tried to do it in 1951 and was, and was defeated by Protestant opposition to the idea of official relations with the Catholic Church. Reagan was the one who normalized relations. Uh, Reagan appointed more Catholics to his cabinet and to his national security team than any president before him, including really fervent Catholics like, like Bill Casey. Um, and in the Pope, Reagan saw an ally, and in a lot of ways he was a natural ally, um, especially when it came to communism, especially when it came to communism in, in Eastern Europe. Um, and that's a relationship that Reagan 
in some ways cultivated, but didn't have to go over the top in trying to move. I mean, it was a kind of, you know, a kind of meeting of minds, and they saw the world in, in very similar, obviously not identical, very similar ways. How important was that in the end of the Cold War? Um, I think it was important. Again, this is one of those things that you can't measure. It's completely immeasurable. Uh, I think it's interesting that two historians who were very suspicious of religion or any other cultural factor in the study of diplomatic history, John Lewis Gaddis, uh, who worked with, um, with whom Will had worked, um, and Mel Leffler, uh, two historians very suspicious of religious in books that they wrote in, in the last sort of five to ten years, both say that this was a central partnership in um, putting forth an anti-communist agenda and ending the Cold War. The story is much more complicated than that, of course, because Reagan at home and in Europe faced a tremendous Catholic opposition to a lot of his foreign policy, especially in Central America, and especially over nuclear weapons. So at the same time that Reagan was, you know, was normalizing relations with the Holy See, he's also having to deal with um, the bishop's pastoral letter on nuclear weapons, which, is, you know, which, which very strongly criticized uh, the Reagan administration uh, the Reagan administration's uh, nuclear strategy is immoral, as very immoral. Um, and a lot of, you know, the Catholic Church was um, uh, central to the sanctuary movement in, in protecting refugees from what was happening in Central America, very critical of what the Reagan administration was doing. So, like, you know, again, I, it makes the story much more interesting and much more complex, but a lot, you know, we have a lot more difficult to apply religion to foreign policy because we have to keep in mind these um, contradictions and these nuances that I was sort of trying to get at in response to a couple of the other uh, questions from that corner of the room. Yes? Uh, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, <coughs> this lecture has long been about religion uh, and not about religions uh, and uh, the focus on the role of religion in American influence and work. Uh, given that, uh, you, given that the, the notion of religion in your lecture uh, is hard to pin down uh, that its concept is not defined. Uh, how different is it from Robert Bela's concept of civil religion in America? Sorry, how different is it from? Ro Robert Bela's uh, concept of civil religion in America. Oh, the concept of civil religion in America. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and another question uh, is to capitalize on, on what Dean Hacking say about uh, how the notion of evil played out in American politics. In, in American, uh, <coughs> uh, if, if you take a look at the war on terror, for instance, the war on terror was framed as a war between the good and the good and evil. Uh, there was this reference about the acts of evil. Mm. Uh, if, if you go back in history and take a look at the Cold War era, it was a, it was a war between East and West, and it was a war between the atheist West, the, the atheist East, the mm. communists, and the captains. Where's the face with the universe? Uh, that's okay. And uh, Andrew, this will be the last question. That's the last question. Okay. Um, well, it was a, there's a lot in that question. I'll try to answer it all. Uh, a, lot of big, a lot of big concepts. Let's start with the civil religion. I, I mentioned this gets back to a question, I think, I think the questioner is left, but it was a question about American religion, uh, the historiography of American religion. And within it, civil religion is a really, a, a really hotly debated topic. Can you talk about a civil religion? What does it mean? have a civil religion. And that historiography, I think, is kind of been captured by an argument that religious studies people have had with Robert Bella, or, or you know, between sort of Bella's 
uh, supporters and his opponents since 1967 when he tried to revive the idea of, it, basically he was trying to revive mainline liberal Protestantism as it was declining um, and, and sort of say that this should be, this is America's civil religion and should be America's civil religion because it's a common denominator for, for everyone and it's incorporated Catholicism and Judaism so that we have something of a Judeo-Christian tradition. Ever since Bella wrote that article, at least as far as I can tell when I speak in the United States, civil religion then means Robert Bella. And I think that that actually is, it, it, I mean, he's, a, he's an incredible uh, social scientist and an incredible um, theorist of religion. And his most recent book on religion and evolution is really incredibly interesting, incredibly fascinating. But the concept of civil religion, it, you know, it, it's much larger and it's, uh, than the United States. It doesn't just apply to the United States. And it, it, you can use it in a more neutral term. And so I used it in the book, and I've taken quite a bit of criticism from religious studies people for using it simply as a, um, as a way of thinking about links between religion and nationalism or religion and patriotism. And that's all I meant. And that the idea of a civil religion, which was um, sometimes kind of, you know, there are a lot of exceptions, but the idea of America's civil religion is one that's inclusive, is one that's based on pluralism and toleration. And presidents from, you know, this is something that presidents have and others have sort of uh, spoken about consistently for the last, at least the last 150 years, at least since Abraham Lincoln sort of revoked General Grant's notorious order about, about, uh, about Jews, um, through Woodrow Wilson, and then especially with, I mean, it's Franklin Roosevelt who really helps codify the Judeo-Christian tradition, which didn't exist as a tradition before that. Uh, and then that's built up by Harry Truman and Dwight Eisenhower, and it's carried through, and that's the kind of tradition that Robert Bella taps into. Um, but he does so in a normative way, and I'm trying to use it in a more, in a more neutral term. Um, I'm trying to use it in a more neutral way as an explanatory device, as a kind of heuristic tool to, to look at religion and then to look at religion's influence in American public life, especially on foreign policy. So I, you know, I, think, I think it's a very useful concept, and I think we can... And then following Bella, there were people like David Tracy and, um, uh, and Martin Marty, who talked about civil religions or public theologies. Um, and they did so, in, again, in this kind of political normative way that, I, I, again, people in other countries talk about civil religions. It's not just a kind of American concept. Um, there was a lot more to your question. I, uh, I'm not sure I have time to sort of, I don't think I do, given the signals I'm getting over here, to sort of break down everything in the question. The last thing, I'll, and it links us back to the first question about Peter Singer and the president of Good and Evil. Um, we have to be careful about a lot of these a lot of these terms because sometimes they come from surprising places. So the phrase axis of evil wasn't George W. Bush's. As far as I can understand, I could be wrong about this, but it was David Frum yeah. who came up with it, who was a secular Jewish Canadian. So it's not always something that comes, you know. See, all problems in American foreign policy are traced back to Canadians. Back to Canadians. <laughs> <laughs> probably, probably that might be true. Probably that might be true. Anyway, thanks for your question. Okay. All right, well, uh, everyone, please join me in thanking you.